Welcome everybody to episode nine of Chiefs of Station. Uh, today we have uh, somewhat of a delicate topic that has made the rounds uh, in the in the media uh, in the within not recently but within the past few years, and that is uh, incidents of uh, police use of ex excessive excessive force. Um, and today uh, I, I would like to discuss this topic uh, with with a few people. Uh, in, in no particular order, we have uh, Harrison Walker, who was already featured in one of our podcasts. We have uh, Thomas Brancato, who is uh, uh, the podcaster for uh, MI Cynic. Go and check out his channel. I highly recommend it. And uh, from a very specific point of view, uh, we have a police officer from the uh, the East Coast here in the United States, and we're just going to call him Jay. And he's going to give us uh, an insight from the perspective of the police officer, which I think is much needed. Um, with that being said, uh, I first want to start with, with Harrison and then move uh, to Thomas. So first, Harrison, why don't you tell me about your perspective when it comes to this, uh, this, this different incidents of, I guess, if you want to call it police brutality or uh, excessive use of force um, that have taken place not just with George Floyd last year, but you know, in, in the years prior. Uh, mm -hmm. What is your take as, as a black man living in America when you see that? Um, honestly, it's, it's gotten to the point where you're almost desensitized to it. Feels like it's always happening. Uh, there's always, especially recently now with, you know, everything's being recorded, everything's on the news. Feels like every, every week there's a, there's a new name out there. Um, so, you know, it takes its toll. And it, it, it always brings the question, you know, what, what am I supposed to do if I need the police? Because you've seen instances where, um, let's say somebody that looks like me will call the police for help and then they end up getting, you know, hurt, arrested, shot at, um, when in fact they were, they were the ones calling for help. So there, there's a lot of layers to it. And um, this is coming from a background too, like my, my grandfather was in law enforcement. Um, so it's, it's always been the conversation just in my family with, with friends, you know, what do we do? There's, there's never a, a clear answer. And there's always, you know, that inherent risk that when the police are involved, I might not make it out of there. My brother might not make it out of there. My mom, my dad, like we might not make it out of there solely because we look the way we look. Um, so, you know, I, I personally have not had too many instances of, you know, uh, discrimination at the hands of law enforcement, but also there's always the question every time I have been pulled over, what was the reason? Well, was, was there, there's always that, you know, little bit of doubt, which I think really hurts the uh, relationship with law enforcement and the communities they serve. So it's sort of like air, you can feel it, you know, it's there, but you cannot see it, right? Yeah, um, these, the times you can see it, it's, yeah. it's really, yeah, but you know, it's also interesting the fact that I I brought uh, Thomas uh, and you here because uh, this uh, these issues of the excessive use of force uh, it is also an issue for private sector because as you know, things like the death of George Floyd take place and then they increase um, violence, rioting in certain cities, which obviously it's it's something that private sector intelligence units need to keep an eye on. So this is also, I also want to tie it back to uh, security in general. But uh, from that, that being said, uh, Thomas, I want, I want to know also your point of view as somebody who has lived in multiple countries, including the United States. 
Well, first of all, I'm delighted to be here, Efren. Thank you so much for um, for inviting me along. Uh, firstly, I want to start by saying that I am no expert at all uh, when it comes to policing. Uh, like anyone, I, I receive the news almost constantly, like Harrison says, uh, regarding uh, USA American police events, let's call them. Uh, they're almost constant at this point and outrageous as they are, but I can definitely uh, understand Harrison's point that, you you, you know, the, the desensitization is, is definitely a real thing because there's, there's just so much of mass shootings, racial uh, shootings, all, all sorts. Um, at, at the same time, you can't help, I can't help, but to try and make sense of it uh, as much as I can uh, as a white man, as a Latino man. Um, and try to apply it to, to my life. Um, and, you know, just based on that, I have uh, a couple of, of incidents that uh, that I'd be delighted to share on, uh, on two of the countries that I lived at, Argentina, where I was born and grew up, and, uh, and of course, New York, uh, where I uh, had the privilege of doing my, uh, my undergraduate. And uh, two, two very different experiences with, with policing, uh, and I think two two very indicative events. So that you we sort of it helps me understand and make sense of them uh, by sharing these stories and and letting them explain what what policing means to me in those countries and how it affected me. Um, and of course, uh, you know, coming from a different background, uh, one is affected differently by these things. Um, so uh, I'm not sure if you if you want me to re to return to that later because they're. they're you know, slightly longer stories, but um, uh, I'll let you decide, Efren, how, how you want to structure. We can certainly uh, start uh, with the example from, from Argentina, because it, 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 as with many countries in Latin America, you do have that history of uh, when something goes bad, obviously the, the police do show uh, force, either because it, it's a violent protest to contain the, the crowds. Um, so it, it, it's a, within a different context. Yes, it is a very different context. And I think an important thing to add is the experience that Argentina's had under military dictatorship. Um, this changes, uh, fundamentally changes the role the police have in society. Uh, I'd, obviously, the United States hasn't had, as far as I'm aware, a military dictatorship, uh, but Argentina has. And this has a massive, drastic effect, uh, and it opens up a lot the point of views that, that people have i mean uh, you know i it's I, you could hear very easily people in argentina have very strong opinions against the police uh you know to blame them for the the tortures and the kidnappings and they called the the desaparecidos the the um disappeared uh during the uh the, the argentine junta and then on you know on the far right you have uh, very ardent supporters of extreme policing uh, I, I was a young man studying my, my undergraduate at the time uh, when this happened in Buenos Aires. And I had up until that point, almost no experience with the police. Um, coming from a privileged upper middle class background, I just stayed away from them. They stayed away from me. Uh, this was before BLM. This was before all of these questions. I, had, I was a naive kid. I had no idea. And it just so happened there was a, a wedding of um i can't even remember now i think a friend of a family somebody uh, in argentina you get invited to a lot of weddings and uh, there i was a young boy going to a part of town that i've never been to and it just so happened that this wedding was in a, in a what what used to be a military compound uh, right beside the lake uh, so it took a while to get there and I was very lost and I was trying to find my way inside and I had no idea where I was and I was late. Uh, I was by myself and I was going in and 
before me was sort of one of these um, police boxes type sort of things, just policing the entry. And uh, I picked up my my mobile at the time, and I was uh, just trying to give a ring to, I think it was my sister who was inside, and I was uh, just a little bit agitated. So I said, I don't know where the hell I am, and and where are you sending me, and where is this thing? And I said, uh, I don't know where I am. I see two milicos in front of me. Now, milicos uh, means it's a derogatory term in Argentina for military men that, that came during the time of the um, the junta. And these guys overheard me say that word, which is a, like a, it's like a slang, like a, it's also a bad word. Uh, and uh, and I've never been more scared in my life. There were, there were two policemen on duty. They weren't military. Uh, I'm not sure if they were security police or what kind of, I think they were actually naval police. It's a very specific type of police. And uh, they overheard me say that word. They said, oh, you put that phone down. And then they came right, you know, they were wearing rifles. They came right at me. I said, uh, you know, who the hell do you think you are uh, using that term around here? Do you know where you are? And uh, and I, you know, I was just wet my pants at that point. Uh, and uh, but I, I got out of that scratch free when they realized that I was a wedding guest. And I think, uh, you know, that by my appearance, probably my skin color could have been a big part of it. Um, my background, the way I spoke, uh, I tried to weasel myself out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I, I don't know what that word means. I don't know. I, I just, you know, I have my sister inside and, and I found my way out of it. Uh, and that was my first and last uh, real experience with, with the police in Argentina. Um, Do you think that maybe if you if you had looked different, I don't know, if you had been uh, a member of the Mapuche on the Argentine side, uh, do you think the story would have been different? 100%. Yeah. 100%. In fact, I, I, I still think I still count my lucky stars that even I got out of that situation scratch free, because uh, I've never been more scared in my life. There was there was a, uh, I don't know how to express it, but in their eyes, you, you could see that they knew they had authority in that situation, and that I was nothing. Right. And that if I disappeared then and there, nobody would know. Wow. Well, on that note, now I want to uh, uh, turn the discussion uh, to our most distinguished guest, distinguished guest, uh, Jay. Uh, so Jay, um, uh, I've known Jay for already uh, many years. He He's a, a law enforcement professional. He's a, he's a police officer. Uh, so thank you, Jay, for taking the time today to discuss this. Um, the first thing that I'm going to ask you is, you know, as, as an individual, you wear the uniform and the badge with pride. What is the mission of the police officer? Uh, through your eyes, through, because I, I know that when, when I first met you, it was your dream to be a police officer. So there is vocation there. There is, you know, that lifelong dream. Uh, and then you've seen through that. Reflecting on the past events and your current mission, your current job, what is the mission of that police officer? Well, thank you, Evan, for having me on the podcast. Um, as far as the mission of the police department, as far as the mission of a police officer, of course, we have that role to protect and serve the community. You know, we're that we're that law enforcement agent that if there's any type of crime, we're there to handle that. Um, but we wear many hats. That's the biggest thing. I, there's really no specified mission as we have to trade from call to call on a day-to-day -day basis. We respond to domestic disputes we to emotionally disturbed people mental people that need mental health assistance we respond to car accidents we respond to people who need medical attention 
And this mission just fluctuates from call to call. And I can't give you the specified directive because it's just ever fluctuating. Now, I think it's very important for everybody to, that is discussing the, the, this topic of the excessive use of force to also understand the point of view of the police officers. So uh, from your point of view, how does it feel when you go out to work every day and how much of that uncertainty, if you feel any uncertainty, affects your judgment, uh, your mindset, your character, that attitude that you have when, when you're out there uh, doing your duty? Of course. Well, just to give everybody a gist of usually how um, my day starts, I could only speak in accordance to my police department. I know other police departments have different policy procedures and different protocols from day to day to basis. But what happens, you go to, you go to work, you see the other person on the shift, you talk about what happened throughout the shift, they log out of their username, um, you log into yours, if there's a universal username, you log into that, and there is a list of calls waiting for you, most days, and like I said before, these calls could range from a domestic, this could range from a car accident, this could range to, to a cat in a tree, it could be whatever, the public calls for assistance, we answer, no matter what, that's our job, that's our duty. Um, you know, there's this big there's this big phrase in the academy that uh, complacency kills, and basically, if you treat every single call the same, eventually there's going to be that one call that you could that you think is going to be completely normal, and it could turn around and go south in an instant. So, with the matter of uncertainty of you know what's going to be present in my next call, could it be you know somebody with a gun? Could it be somebody with the knife? Could it be somebody that's attacking somebody else, and I need to help them or could it be somebody that's trying to attack me it's always in the back of your head it's not um that you go into the every single call with that mentality oh this person's out to kill me this person's out to kill me but it is something that you have to take into consideration when you're answering these calls when you're you know enforcing traffic uh violations so it's something that's in the back of your head and um it's just good to know that we're not out there constantly thinking that the public is trying to kill us. However, we have to be prepared for that situation where it can be a possibility. Now, there's some, with these specific issues, uh, George Floyd and, 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 and the rest, there seems to be this, this perception of uh, at least those individuals, uh, the, the, the police officers in, in those specific instances, that they're more uh, responding out of self-defense uh, out of self-preservation, survival. So um, do you think this is probably due to um, a lack of training or why, why I understand that, as you mentioned, a situation could go south in a matter of seconds, uh, but aren't they trained or, I mean, and I understand every single PD is different, but is there something where they teach you like first, maybe try to disable the individual instead of uh, you know aiming and, and shooting to kill. It's a difficult question. I understand because in, at that moment when you you perceive a threat, it is a, a life death situation, right? So it's it's kind of it's 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 kind of difficult to ask. But at the same time, I must ask this because a lot of people that uh, have discussed this issue with they they usually say, well, why didn't you shoot shoot him in the leg or you know try to to disarm him you know you have pepper sprays you have uh you know other other means um instead of uh, you know using the gun i understand what you're saying so basically every single police department in the country 
has to have a use of force model. And basically a use of force model dictates what amount of force you're going to use to gain compliance, whether that's to take a suspect into custody. Sometimes you have to take a person to the uh, mental health facilities for evaluation. It could range from a bunch of things, protests, so on and so forth. So you have to base every situation um, well, not every situation. You have to base certain situations with this use of force model. And usually there's five steps. I can't speak um, for a, a, a couple of departments around the country. I can only speak for my own. Um, but the first step is just basic compliance. So let's say you go and you have to arrest the suspect. And basically he's saying, okay, you could arrest me, puts his arms behind his back, does the whole nine, listens to your commands. He's being compliant. There's no reason to use excessive force on that person, okay? The second is um, a passive um, resistant. Passive resistant, let's say so you have to take somebody into custody and they're like, okay, you can take me into custody, but they're, they're dead weight on the floor. They're not moving for you. They're not listening to your commands. They're, you know, just, just dead weight. They're not gonna listen to you. So you have to use a little amount of force in order to gain that compliance, which is either taking his arm, putting it behind his back, so on and so forth. Then there's active resistance and active resistance is basically when this person is not moving, let's say for protest, for example, they're hugging onto a tree and they're holding onto it for dear life because they don't want to go with you. That's an active resistance. So you're going to have to use either body manipulation tactics, try to, you know, get his arm behind his back in a more forcible manner than you usually would use uh, and so on and so forth with uh, that type of resistance. And then in the level four, there's um, assaultive. So level four and level five, these are the levels where you're going to have to use, let's say for level four, your taser, your pepper spray, your baton, or whatever other department provided item that is on your belt. If not, you could possibly use your personal training. I know most departments sometimes train in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or some type of defensive tactics. Um, so with this, you'll probably use something on your belt. And then finally, we get to the last level, which is level five, which is what we've been seeing a lot around the country, um, which is the deadly physical force. And, you know, deadly physical force is just described as any type of force that's readily capable of killing somebody or causing serious physical injury. Um, and that's basically resorting to your duty weapon. Um, and this is what we've seen with a lot of cases uh, in regards to police-involved shootings. There's certain cases such as the George Floyd one where deadly physical force was in fact used. And that was a manner of, you know, if he's, this person was saying that he couldn't breathe and officer failed to um, to realize that this need, this person needed attention too late. Um, in regards to the conception with the community, about firing a weapon. It is not as easy as it seems. It's not like you're gonna point and shoot and the bullet is gonna land exactly where you're pointing the, the weapon at, okay? In the police academy, in most police academies, we train when using deadly physical force to fire at center mass. This is the biggest area of the body that we know it's most likely going to hit if we need to use deadly physical force. When it comes to shooting at a leg, or an arm, you, people have to understand, the community has to understand that most of the time in these deadly physical force situations, the, the suspect is most of the time moving around. And there's this thing called a backstop. And your backstop is the environment that you're in. So 
sometimes in an urban environment, there's multiple people in the background. There's children, there's women, there's men. There's multiple ways that if we do not aim at the center mass and we need to use that deadly physical force, that that bullet could miss and hit one of them, an innocent bystander. So that's one thing. And also it's, it's even with shooting at a leg or an arm, there's major arteries in this, in the, in the body anatomy. So it still is considered deadly physical force. It could still ultimately lead to somebody's death or another serious physical injury, no matter what. However, in the academy, we train to aim at center mass. It's much more of a bigger target. And if we need to neutralize a suspect because we do perceive that this person is going to kill either another officer or another person, that is what we're gonna aim for. It is definitely a, a very tricky situation. Uh, and of course, you know, this, uh, um, these sort of situations are diffused within a, within a few seconds. You know, it's not something that you have a good 10 minutes unless it's somebody being, you know, trapped inside a house and, you know, have held somebody being held hostage. But when you have this type of, of incidents, you only have a matter of seconds to make that decision, make to, to decide what to use. And uh, it must be extremely hard to make the right decision when you know that, as you mentioned with the bystanders, it's it's like a lose-lose situation and you have to choose the one with the less impact. But it's still a very tricky situation now with the ex example of, of George Floyd where no firearms were used. Um, do you think this type of incidents, do you think this reflects uh, a lack of uh, not just initial training because everybody has an initial training in the different PDs, but maybe ongoing refreshers, ongoing training. Um, uh, yeah, what, what, is, what, what is your thought in, in these type of cases when no firearms were used? And like I stated before, it's the academy's job. Um, it's the department's job. It's the state's job to fund these departments and these trainings and the feds as well. There's federal funding for these trainings um, in order for the officers to be prepared and can constantly train in defensive tactics and de-escalation and the use of deadly physical force. And this has to be constantly implemented and refreshed throughout the rest of the career, which I know many departments do. There's always refresher training. There's always training in de-escalation tactics in respect to um, the departments that I know um, in the regards of use of force, in regards of medical attention, in regards to um, verbal judo, just basically how to use your voice and your words in order to de-escalate a situation. I know officers that um, they even take time out of their day to better themselves and try to train in Brazilian jiu-jitsu so that if they ever get into a situation, they, they don't, you know, they don't want to go to that extra level because they weren't prepared. Mm -hmm. Right. So there, there's a there's constant training on the personal side as well as on the professional side. Um, so that's that's basically to answer your question. Now, uh, before I open up the the floor to uh, to Thomas and, and Harrison for for questions, I just want to uh, quickly ask you about uh, community led policing. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think should be the the role that the community is playing? Uh, uh, you know, working side by side as um, um, basically as, as as partners with the police departments. You know, I know the community is is a huge part um, uh, when it comes to tough neighborhoods, uh, trying to uh, to to have some sort of oversight and to help police when a situation happens, giving them leads, etc. But what do you think should be the 
ideal framework where a community uh, is included in, in the policing because it shouldn't just be law enforcement patrolling and you know them taking all the burden it should should be both ways mm-hmm. of course um so this is a this is the i guess the bridge the gap aspect to bridging the gap between the police department and the community um there are various aspects in which the police department could enforce and you know extend this community relationship um what i've seen with some departments is that they actually have community meetings so that you know the community could talk about their grievances that what's happening like okay hey listen there's this person that's you know dealing drugs down the block there's this person that every single night at, at excuse me every single morning at 1 a.m he's blasting music um so it gives an outlet for the community to express their grievances and, you know, thus the police department can respond more effectively into these communities. But besides the community meetings as a police officer, it should be the job of a police officer. And I know um, a lot of officers get caught into their day to day tasks. You know, it could be very, very tiresome um, going from domestic, domestic, domestic. You know, you get a, a child that was sexually abused. You have to handle that. You got an aided. You got, you know. The, the grandmother that forgot her medication, you got a missing person. And, you know, it gets into, it, it gets very um, tiresome mentally. And you you get sidetracked with all these day-to-day tasks that you sometimes forget, hey, maybe I should visit the, I should visit the bodega at the corner and talk to the store owner. Let's see what's going on with him. I maybe I should, I should visit the old lady who lives down the block and see how she's doing. Um, there's a lot of ways that the police could be more effective by engaging with their community. You know, you see a lot of, sometimes you see some videos of officers playing basketball, playing baseball, playing football with children. Great way to bridge a gap, great way to show kids that the police are not out here, out here to get you. Um, also, you know, sponsored events, sponsored events are great for families. You know, sometimes they have some departments offer, uh, oh, bring your child uh, and your family here. We'll show you what we do. They'll take them around in the police car. They'll show them the police horses. They'll show them what emergency service does. Um, a lot of community uh, resources in, in that aspect. So there's a lot of ways that, you know, um, bridging the community and the police department can be done and should be done because honestly, without the community, we can't be as effective. And I understand there's a, there's a fear of police and that's, you know, a lot due to um, you know the media, the, uh, like uh, Harrison said, and uh, Thomas, you said they're constantly reporting on this aspect of you know police brutality, and it's also a misconception because sometimes it's a video to where there's an actual justification of the use of force, but in order to um, I guess I don't know how the media operates, but they cut a video, they send a snippet out, they post it up. And then later on that day, there's the full video. And it's like, oh, wow, you just started this whole uprising of this guy was unarmed. And then it turns out he had a gun or it turns out he had a knife. And it's like, wow. So there's a lot there's a lot to do with the media coverage and um, things of that nature. Um, It's very true. And basically, that's it. There's there's a there's a lot of ways. the police department, you know, should, and, you know, I see it now, they're trying to bridge that gap. Um, and also fluidity, just explaining a situation to the public, body cameras, I know um, that's a big thing that's gonna happen in the near future. If not, it's already being implemented in the bigger cities. Um, it's an asset. 
you know, to the police department. I know there's controversy, like, you know, the 30 seconds before, let's say you, you're using the bathroom and it records 30 seconds, but you respond to an incident and God forbid you have to use that deadly physical force. And then, you know, people get concerned about their privacy and everything um, along the lines of that, but it provides the community a means to see the situation. It's readily capable of being. It's part of accountability. It's readily capable of And it's, it's easy to explain because the camera doesn't lie. Yeah. The camera doesn't lie. Um, and to piggyback on what you said, you see a lot more media coverage and a lot more um, use of force incidents. And Harrison, I think you mentioned before that there's more cameras. There's more outlets in order for this information to be disseminated. You got Twitter, you got Facebook, you got Instagram, you got TikTok, where people just record and post, record and post. And this information gets widespread, widespread. And there's also a lack of understanding that you know, what you, what the community may seem, may, may think is an excessive use of force is actually the protocol of the actual police department. And it's important that the police department explains to the community that, hey, this is our use of force procedure. When this happens, this was justified because X, Y, and Z. An explanation goes a long way. Um, another thing I like to see with the police departments is that they actually have civilian academies where they give um, the community uh, access to an, a shortened academy, probably uh, three, four weeks. Wow. And they take them throughout, you know, the physical training, you know, some case law, they do ride alongs, which is a great resource because they can actually see what type of calls you respond to on a day to day. And even better, they have the simulation training and the simulation training. I know there's different ways that they could do it. There's one that they have a, um, computerized you know weapon and they put you in a like a virtual reality based situation where you choose whether or not to use deadly physical force so for example you'll have you roll up on a, a domestic dispute virtually and the civilian is going to have you know they're saying okay this is we have reports of you know this person supposedly has a shotgun in the apartment um her the neighbor next to her two rounds and then you're gonna have a woman come up like oh my husband's in there with with a shotgun and right as soon as he comes out he has his arms behind his back you don't know what's behind his back but it's up to the the community member to see what are they going to do are you going to talk this person out of show are you, you going to say show show me your hands show him your hands and it's a fluid situation it gives a actual reality of what happens in a situation where it involves deadly physical force yep. so it's a it's a eye opener because um you know like i said it's not like the movies it's it's ever changing. You got to be fluid. You got to be constantly reevaluating and reassessing what are you working with. Um, so I think that's a that's a great tool and asset that the department uses in order to bridge that gap. And I believe a lot of this stuff could be resolved with an explanation of the department's protocol procedures um, towards the community and having them give an insight on it. What do you like? And of course, the police department always needs to have, you know, you're going to need a police for a police department to function. You're going to need, um, you know, these levels of uses of force. You know, you're going to have your taste. You're going to have a gun um, because, you know, the bad guys, they're going to have a gun. What am right. I going to, you know, our police officers just use a baton, like a, like a lightsaber and deflect the bullets when they're getting shot at. If someone's trying to get, if, if somebody's, you know, trying to kill somebody else, trying to shoot somebody else, trying to stab mm -hmm. somebody else, 
what am I going to do? Take out my, my mace? Or am I going to take out my baton and start hitting them? No. There are certain situations where this use of force is justified and needs to be used to preserve other people's lives. It's not only for our lives, and of course, it is to preserve our lives as well, but it's for the protection of the community as well. And, you know, this needs to be explained and emphasized. And I, I mean, I highly encourage any, if it's offered by the police department and the respective communities to try and do a ride along, try and do a civilian academy, because it's going to be an eye opener. Like, wow, it's not like the news media says that every single mm -hmm. call we go to, we take our gun. Every single we go to, we take out our razor. Every single we go to, we, we you know, we have to be hands on with somebody, get physical with somebody. Yeah. You know, sometimes we just get a call for, you know, a dog walking in the street and we got to take them to the animal hospital. Sometimes we get a call because the, an old lady is lonely because her husband passed away and we stay the extra 10, 15, 30, however long it takes to, um, you know, address her needs, to speak to her. You know, we're, we're more than just an enforcement role. We have to be a friend. We got to change our hats sometimes. We got to be that parent, parental figure to the child that just lost her parents in a car accident. Mm -hmm. Um we got we to gotta do a lot of stuff. And it's a shame that most of the stuff goes under the, under the bus. You know, it's a thankless job. Most of us didn't sign up for this job to be thanked. Most of, we didn't sign up to go attack anybody. And I could speak for most cops. Maybe there's that bad bunch that they, they wanted to go. They want a gun. They want to hurt people. Maybe. They're always, they're always the bad apples. Yeah, there are always bad apples that, that give always, a bad reputation to, bad to everybody else. Definitely. It makes it very hard for us. And it may, it's very frustrating to roll up on somebody and try to assist them. And they're like, oh, you guys are killers. You guys are this. You guys are that. It's like, I actually care about being here. Mm -hmm. I love coming to work. No matter what, I'm going to help you to the best of your ability unless you're telling me that you don't want me at all. If you don't want me at all, how can I help you? I'm not here to attack you. I'm not here to hurt you. Yeah, no, and, you know, I, I can speak for a lot of I, I, I want to take a, a side note and then I know that uh, Thomas had a question. Uh, so, Thomas, um, what do you have for, for Jay? Yeah, well, uh, not, not just one question, but uh, really a, a reply. But let me just start by saying I 100% agree with you that I think community relations must be part of the answer and rebuilding those communal ties that may have been broken especially in the last few years with these high profile cases. Um, and as well, I want to add that you might be shocked, Jonathan, to discover we don't have lightsabers here in the United Kingdom, uh, but but the police <laughs> are still not armed here. Uh, we do have an armed police unit and they're called out when a situation demands it, such as uh, you have a terrorist event or a, or a serious, um, uh, you know, usually even even in a situation where you have an armed and dangerous individual, we will try a, a few different operational procedures before we get to that last resort of saying, okay, you know, call in the what you would call the SWAT team over there and and deal with this. Uh, and that's really only if if lives are at stake and and the situation demands it. But we don't carry lightsabers. We still find a way around it. Um, and I say that I think it's an important thing because you know if we're going to have a, a conversation about policing in the United States. We should also be talking about guns. I think that's a big, big part of it. And I, I can certainly offer that comparative approach to United Kingdom where uh, you, you'll need a license to, you know, and even then uh, you only see people with farm and farms that have weapons. Uh, firearms are disallowed for the, for the vast majority of the population. Um, and then lastly, I was interested in, in, in your reply uh, because 
when we when you spoke about the case of George Floyd, this is a uh, a case that reached us here in the UK. In fact, it, it spawned our version of the of the BLM protests here in the middle of a pandemic. And there were hundreds of people that marched down Parliament. Uh, people felt very strongly about it, um, even in, here in the United Kingdom, you know, an ocean apart. And so I think certainly the message that we've received here in the United Kingdom was that we're not just talking about the, the use of excessive force, but but the racial implications of how that excessive force is applied. Uh, and I think that that part I, I didn't get from from your uh, part of, of, of what you were talking about before is that that racial implication, which is uh, really important. I mean, it's that's really what we are hearing here in the United Kingdom. And I think in the, in the rest of the world is it's not just excessive use. It's 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 specifically a racially pro profiled uh, excessive use of force. And I think that's what makes the case uh, so compelling to so many people that, uh, for example, the, the BLM protests here in the UK, but in, in many other countries as well. So I'm interested to, to see um, why that was not present in your reply and, and, and what you make of, of that. You know, where, where does that fit into the equation? Uh, uh, does it, in, in your opinion, and, and where where does it? Of course. No, I, I understand this. Um, I, there's been a lot of, you know, um post there's been a lot of you know media coverage on the racial implications of policing you know a lot of my my friends they say there's systemic racism so on and so forth um, along the lines with you know racial bias and policing my my personal opinion i do not target anybody or their race their color their creed whatever they believe in i know a lot of other police officers could say the same we are not racially profiling anybody um, now, in regards to actual policing, um, there was most police agencies are based off this theory called broken windows and broken windows just basically is a form of preventative policing. If there's an air, let's say there's an abandoned car, um, in, you know, a quote unquote good neighborhood and there's a bad, an abandoned car in a quote unquote bad neighborhood, um, uh, with high crime rate so on and so forth. We're going to see more destruction of the abandoned car in the, in the bad neighborhood than in the good neighborhood. So what is the police department response to that? What they're going to do is to prevent crime from happening, they're going to put more police officers in the neighborhood that is considered a high crime rate and put less officers in the, in the area that's considered uh, less of a crime rate, if, if you get what I'm saying. Thus, this gets into a play where what is the ethnic background of these neighborhoods? And I do not like using the term minority. I feel like it's it's derogatory because, you know, this country, there's, there's a bunch, there's diversity in this country. But if we want to speak on, you know, Hispanic, Latino, um, African-American communities that are uh, reported to be above, uh, under the, the poverty line, um, unfortunately, they make up a lot of these communities that are considered uh, to be high crime rate. Thus, having more of a police presence is going to skew the statistics in putting more traffic enforcement, more arrests, uh, more incarcerations, just because there's more of a police presence. And although it was in place as a means to be preventative of crime, it does show that there is more incarceration and more stops and more um, you know, police activity in these neighborhoods then compared to um, the, the quote unquote, you know, good neighborhood. So 
it, it's unfortunate that um you know it, it's it's a it's a really like hard topic to discuss because it's very sensitive um but you know what what was made to be preventative policing can also be interpreted as racial profiling as racial bias and you know that's that's just the i think the, that the a, lo a, a lot of that has to do um with uh, the education or uh, I guess that relationship that the community has with, with the police, right? Because if uh, in, in some neighborhoods, maybe where there is a, a larger um, Hispanic population, right? When you have different clusters of, of where uh, people live, maybe they, 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 and maybe they're brought up to say like, well, you know, the police is scared to get you. And then if somebody gets arrested, then, you know, because they have, that mentality maybe that that's also a contributing factor it's it's that that fractured relationship between the police and the community um but uh harrison uh you you want to say something of course go ahead yeah because <clears throat> i think it's it's easy to to discuss this topic and and have it seem like it's one-dimensional but there's so many other parts of at least in the united states um society that kind of incorporate policing and other governmental and racial disparities in these communities. Because like you said, Jay, um, the broken windows theory, I majored in uh, criminal justice in college, like went through, I had to, had to have written 15 papers on it. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's <clears throat> it was designed to do exactly what you said, be preventive policing, um, but it does skew those numbers. If you have more police in some area, you're gonna have more police activity. They're gonna be stopping more crime, but that's not, indicative of these neighborhoods, you know, actually having a higher crime rate. I think it was uh, um, the white community and the black community use marijuana at the same rate, um, roughly the same rate, but black people are something like two to three times more likely to have a police encounter because of it. Mm -hmm. um, and from that point, they're more likely to spend time in jail uh, because of it than a white counterpart that did get stopped for it. So it's, it's, there's, there's these levels to it. Even when, even when you're just talking, because it's not, it, it doesn't end with um, the officer on the ground. That's more of a gatekeeping situation. It's going to, the, the disparities come into play a lot more and compounding when you're taking members out of a community, when you're taking breadwinners from a family out of a community. And a lot of these crimes that are happening in some of those low income uh, areas are crimes of necessity. People are putting money on the table. They're putting, you know, food on the table um, to make sure they can take care of a family member um their kids so i think it's important to really understand that you know yeah we're talking about uh police brutality and the racial implications from it but it doesn't end there and sometimes it doesn't even start there um for me my first i guess conversation about the police i think i was four or five years old and my parents had to sit me down and just tell me hey you have to be careful i grew up in connecticut uh very, very white neighborhood, um, went to a predominantly white school. My parents had to sit me down and say, hey, your friends are going to do some things that you can't do because they won't get in trouble for it, but you will. So that, you know, when I have to sit there and hear that, and then how are you going to tell a five-year-old, you know, <laughs> to not do certain things like that and expect it to land? Um, but it does. It's it's everybody in my family's had, had that conversation. And when that's your first interaction of, hey, those you know, guys in blue over there, yeah, call them if you need help, but be careful. Be, and a five-year-old's supposed to sit there and, you know, kind of grow up overnight and have to, you know, 
express a level of maturity that they should not have. Um, when that's your first interaction with the, I guess I won't say interaction, but your first exposure to, to American policing, um, that right there already creates a, a unlevel playing field with, you know, every other white community member that had that has not heard that conversation or had to have that conversation. So, you know, it's something that we have to think about and there's there's multiple layers to what's going on here and there's multiple reasons for it. Um, just an example is, you know, one of the the reasons with the whole, you know, defund the police or, or XYZ, whatever, whatever the argument is here, um, is a lot of people say, hey, it started, it, there's a direct link at least between, uh, you know, the slave patrols in the United States where they were kind of one of the first law enforcement agencies in America as it was as a country. Um, and there's a direct link to policing now since, you know, none of those real disparities, none of those real systems that were put in place were ever truly gotten rid of. They were, you know, training was put in, they, they evolved over time, but they still target a certain community. And all those communities have, you know, been in jail for X amount of years, they've, you know, been consistently targeted, they've been deprived of the opportunity to, to even vote, they've been deprived of the opportunity to make money and better their communities. All of those things compound this whole issue to make it a lot more difficult to try to, to try to solve. So I just, I think it's a, it's a lot more complex than a lot of people really understand. And um, it, we're, we're expecting a lot to happen in a, in a, in a short amount of time. I think that also the, the, this um, uh, this relationship between the community and the police and this this if uh, this incidents of excessive use of force, I think it's likely going to take a generation to be able to change that and to be back on track because it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, no matter how uh, if if you put more training or if you give refresher to police officers, if you try to bridge the gap that it's going to take a whole generation before uh, before it gets a lot better because it's been in that state for a long time nowadays with the use of social media platforms to share that this type of incidents you know <laughs> tiktok or facebook live or what have you um we get access more to, to this type of incidents whereas we actually don't know how often they happen before the era of social media Right, because we just didn't have access to to live recordings when there were things were happening at the moment, and if something happened in Connecticut, you likely will not hear it uh, if you lived somewhere in Northern California, unless it was a big deal. Nowadays, uh, you have uh, citizen journalists everywhere with uh, with cameras and phones, uh, which really has um, further, I guess, fracture um, that uh, uh, the relationship between the community and the police. Because so you obviously have the population uh, that is being affected directly by things like this, meaning those members of the community that knew a victim that that was that so, that was involved in, a, in an excessive use of force incident. Uh, but then again, you have these other individuals that are, are more opportunistic, and this is this is what I wanted to to address because it gets to a point where these incidents, like the George Floyd, actually do become a threat. Uh, to, to the larger population, to businesses, because they do generate violent reactions from protesters, right? And some of them may tag themselves as uh, Black Lives Matter, but they may be opportunistic criminals that are just taking advantage of the opportunity to loot and just wreak havoc. So then you also have this type of people that I just, they don't necessarily believe or care about what's going on, 
they just go along for the free ride if they if they can get something out of it. Uh, and this really is what has further fractured. Um, now it's, it, it's either, you know, you're right or you're wrong, you're with me, you're against me. Um, but it's sort of like the curse of having access to all this information nowadays. Uh, so what, what, what are your thoughts about, about that, Jay? And about what Harrison said and what I just said. Um, just Harrison, I, I completely agree with you that it goes deeper than just the beat cop that, um, you know, tries to, you know, stop crime, tries to, you know, prevent crime from happening, does, you know, traffic stops, does, you know, his police, his daily police duties, you know, it goes, it goes beyond that. It goes into the courts. It goes into the federal level of this country. It goes to the, the, the roots of, you know, and the law that this country was built on. So um, I know there's been a bunch of, you know, uh, progressive movements, you know, in New York, in California, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there was the, the bail reform. Um, there is, you know, a bunch of things, you know, I have my own opinion on that. I will not express my opinion on that. However, there is a lot of progressive um, actions that are being done by politicians and so on and so forth. And um, it just needs to be evaluated in regards to how is this going to benefit the community and how is this also going to um, help the police do their job as well. It has to be a, a balance. And it's hard to find the balance, especially in such an environment where, as Afrin said, um, every if you're not with me, you're against me. I don't want to hear what you have to say if you don't believe in what I got to say. And it, it's, a very, it's a big lack of misunderstanding. There has to be some type of middle ground in order for us to you know, progress from as the community and the police um, together. Uh, in regards to the protests, there's a lot of opportunists when, when it comes to um, you know, looting, uh, when it comes to you know, burning buildings down, when it comes to you know, attacking police officers, attacking other people. Um, there's always that like, said like I like was stated before um there's bad people in every single type of group and you know what started off as a, a belief that um you know black and brown lives matter and they need to be um this, the issues that are occurring in society need to be addressed and taken more seriously over the um, x amount of years that you know certain incidents have been occurring got skewed with the opportunities of, you know, I want to burn down buildings. I want to steal from, you know, Gucci, Louis. I want to take this take this um, thing that was supposed to be for good and skew it to, you know, make it their own and make it into chaos. And unfortunately, you know, there's always going to be those bad people that try to, you know, ruin, ruin something for everybody. Ruin something that was supposed to be, um, you know, was supposed to uh, promote awareness within this country. Of, of certain injustices that have been occurring. Um, and it's unfortunate. And, you know, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, movement and things that, you know, have been occurring so that, you know, things could change. You know, recently with the, there's the, the Stop Asian Hate movement that's been occurring as well. Um, there's been laws passed in regards to making, you know, if, if there's an attack on somebody of Asian descent, I believe, do not quote on me, is, is considered a hate crime now. Um, and there, there's been a lot of changes, um, like I said, that have been occurring. And, you know, I'm pretty sure there's going to be more throughout the year, especially now that this, um, these issues are being addressed more by the uh, political um, parties that are in place and political governance that is in place at the moment. So um, 
That's all I could say. I'm not a politician, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I could definitely see changes. And, you know, speaking on the police, um, the policing side, it's just a matter of fluidity and honesty with the community so they can better understand that we're not out to get, we're not out to get the community. We're not out to, you know, hurt anybody. We're not going into the car, wake up every morning. Like, I can't wait to use my gun today. We're not going out there and say, I can't wait to, uh, you know, arrest uh, somebody for, you know, a traffic ticket, you know. And it's unfortunate that there is that mentality that the community has about police just because the, you know, the what's been happening in recent events. It just portrays that the police are out to get the community and that's not, that's not the aspect. That's yeah. not what we're here for. Mm-hmm. We're, um, we're, here to, we're here to help. We're here to help. I could say for many, 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 and I could speak on behalf of almost every single cop that we are here to help. We love the job. And, you know, we want to build that relationship with our communities because without the community, we can't operate efficiently. We can't operate efficiently. Um, right. Harrison, and, you, know, you, you guys. He was going to say it. Harrison? Yeah, because <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll agree, um, especially I'll speak for myself here. The vast majority of situation with cops that I've been involved in, it ended, I'm here, it's ended fine. Um, uh, but like what I, what I want to hit on is, yeah, you, you guys, especially you, like all the cops I know, I'm going to assume the vast majority like, that I've been involved with in my life are genuinely there to help. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think what a lot of people, especially in the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of people in the minority communities want to see a little bit more of, and we did see it in um, the Chauvin trial here, is those you know good cops that are doing the right thing day in and day out speak up when something like this happens. And unfortunately, we don't see a lot of that, um, be it because, you know, it's not getting a lot of coverage, be it because, you know, whatever factors are, are, are playing in there. I think that's one of those things that a lot of people want to see more of, um, just because that, like you said, you're, we, there's going to be a reckoning someday where we're going to be like, the police and the community need to work together if, uh, you know, the relationship is going to exist at all. Um, if police are going to be able to do their jobs or, you know, the community is going to be able to function as a community should. Um, there's going to have to be, you know, some work done there. And I think, um, I, I hear the phrase and I hate it. Uh, there's a couple bad apples, um, just because it seems like, you know, every time there's a bad apple, three days later, there's another bad apple. Um, so, you know, some, at some point, somebody's got to look at the tree. Somebody's got to say, hey, this tree or, you know, this orchard is, there's, there's something wrong. We need to you know, root it up, plant new ones. You're going to have, there's going to have to be a point where we want to have that conversation. And right now, every time somebody brings it up, it's, I think you, you said it before, Jay, um, people want to just attack each other. I don't want to listen to um, what you have to say because you disagree with, you know, my point B over here. Um, I, I think that doesn't help anybody. It's only hurting the situation. And once we can get to a point where we can say, hey, let's actually talk about it and come up with ways to better the community. Cause I think that's the whole point. You want to keep the community safe. If you keep the community safe, that's, that's the, if that's the end goal, why not have conversations that can, can lead to that point? And, and that being said, a conversation isn't a decision. It's, it's not passing a law. A conversation is a conversation. And I think a lot of people um, need to understand that and you know, it'd make it easier going forward to 
to sit down and talk rather than uh, attack people. My other point was um, in regards to the, you know, protests and riots that happen as, as a result of these incidents. Um, my personal feeling here is it's, it's, it's unfortunate and it bothers me that, you know, day after day in the black community, Latino community, we see, you know, friends, brothers, sisters shot and killed. And then when we're upset about it, we're upset, we're expressing it in the form of protest. It, it's kind of pushed back on us. We're met with a, a militarized police force that are, that they're told to go out there and, you know, be that force and they stop what's going on where I, I think it could be a lot better served, especially when you see situations like, uh, I think it was Kyle, Kyle Rittenhouse, um, the individual that showed up across state lines to one of these protests and ended up shooting people wasn't arrested until what a week later when he went back home. Um, it's it's just it's it's funny to me to to see a community hurting, a community angry, and then the the response is to antagonize almost. And I I don't think that's um, an individual officer. You know, that's not their call. They can't. It's not mm -hmm. how how what can they do in that situation? That's like I said, that's a department issue. That's that's looking at the tree rather than those apples. You know, it it may it may also has to do with the current uh, political narrative in the country, and Definitely. that has a huge influence on how this 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 type of situations develop. Right. Uh, obviously, uh, as an intelligence professional, I need to be apolitical, so I I can only speak with regards to the incidents that I've written reports on. Uh, the incidents that I've monitored, and of course, from you know the past four years, the the the, the level of social unrest in the country because of um, excessive use of force-related incidents have increased, um, unlike anything that that we saw before. So it also has to do a lot with uh, the political tone that is currently being used throughout the country that has been fractured the whole nation, really. But Thomas, you wanted to say something. Yeah, well, I just want to start by saying that I, uh, I think both uh, Jonathan and Harrison made great points. Um, I think, Jonathan, you're talking a bit more about the economic inequality that drives a, a lot of what we're talking about today. Um, it's almost like a catch-22 is the way I see it is, you know, the poverty breeds poverty and we send more police to, to you know, to to fix the result of that poverty, which in turn, as Harrison said, you're taking out the bread. So it's almost like this repetitive loop, uh, which is harder to fix because that, you know, then we're not even talking about the tree, we're talking about the whole the whole bloody meadow, you know, it, the, the economic system in place almost leads to this. But I think Harrison's point is really good too, because I, I think when we're talking about uh, the culture of policing, uh, which is not one individual cop, but rather you're looking at departments, you're looking at the rotten tree, that is something we can fix. It's not as hard as changing capitalism, you know, it might be down to, okay, you know, let's look at concrete examples, concrete departments and see what's going on here. Um, so I think that's really worth getting into. Um, and to relate to that, I, I sort of like Jay's comment before when you mentioned, um, you know, the cop doesn't uh, is not thinking at the back of the head is somebody's out there to get us, you know, the public's out there to get us. And I think this is so fascinating uh, to hear for, for, from my perspective, it may not be so much for you guys, but uh, I don't know, I don't think it's the way police even, you know, it's not a thought that crosses their minds here in the UK. Uh, it's not, 
uh, there's not this antagonism between you know there could be somebody in the public that's you know that that's uh, you know could could kill me today um you know that that adds another dimension to policing that i think is a really important part of why we're talking about uh, excessive force i think there's a link there and f from my little example i remember the the first experience i had with with a policeman was well i just landed in new york to stop my studies i was in times square as we all do looking around and i was completely lost as we all are and i went up to a cop and uh you know i don't remember i was like can you, can you give me directions you know back to my hotel and the guy just looked at me sized me up and down took a few seconds to respond and then just kind of pointed somewhere and mumbled off and and i just immediately had the the realization okay cops here they're not your friend don't go to them for, you know, don't ask them where the hotel is. Don't, they're not your friend. They're not there to take care of me and my needs. You know, I'm just, a, I'm a stupid white tourist boy. They're there, you know, if, if a terrorist or, or a criminal or some major bad thing happens. And I think that mentality for me anyway, really serves up to, to explain what we're talking about. When we're talking about the difference between policing here and policing in America. In America, it takes a lot more of a militarized, uh, it's a battlefield. And at any moment, something could just pop off and major drama. Uh, and it's very different to what we see here. Um, and I think here, when I talk about the UK, the closest example we could have to that is Northern Ireland which of course you might remember the troubles and then had a, a past of actual police confrontation and shootings and killings uh, with a civilian that was, um, you know, parts of it were armed and part of an independence movement, all the rest of it. So my question broadly, not just to Jay, but to everybody is, is, is that is why when we're talking about police in the, in the US, why is it more similar to Northern Ireland than it is to England? I think that in general, um, I mean, it, it's not a simple, <laughs> a simple topic, but um, when we look at England, for example, right, there is a difference between, and this is something that you mentioned at the very beginning. So uh, in, in, in the UK, um, access to guns, firearms, it's much more restricted. I correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I think that uh, people like living in the countryside they, they, they can they can apply it to one and it's it may just be a rifle you can have a point okay. 22 or something similar if you're a, if you're a farm kind of right. owner but here in the united states you have uh, much more access to uh, uh to to firearms of course you need to get a license and all that but then there is, there is that whole issue uh on on that whole process alone and that's a whole different debate uh, but that is, in essence, from my point of view, the biggest difference, which will contribute to rising crime, right? If people don't have access to guns, uh, you know, it's, it's, crimes will take it in a different way. Crimes will be easier to, uh, to handle if somebody is, for example, with a, a knife, right, uh, versus somebody with a gun. Uh, trying to assault the stores. So uh, to me, the uh, firearms and the access to them, it's its what makes two different uh, police cultures, police cultures of policing in the, in these two countries. But uh, I'm no expert, but I don't know. Harrison and Jay, what do you have to say about that? Um, on my end, I, I think a huge point um, is, yeah, the access to guns. I think it, it delves a little bit deeper into... Um, especially right now, how, how divided uh, the United States are. It does seem like there's two separate countries almost sometimes. So I think <clears throat> there's already that adversarial mindset uh, kind of when there's almost an interaction 
with the police and and not not I'm not even just saying as a um, a black man in America I'm saying just in general there's it's an adversary I don't I don't uh, see a cop on the side of the street and immediately feel dread for no reason like I I'm, I'm nervous and uh, it's not you know it's something I wish I didn't feel it's like when I get pulled over I don't like that but there's that adversarial mindset like this person there that's they're not going to help me unless you know I <laughs> flag them down and immediately like in dire need um, that's not going to be my first my first instinct to go to them so I think that that culture which is you know like Efren said, that's going to be a generational thing to fix. That's not something we can we can fix overnight. Um, the other thing is, I think that um, just going off Efren's point with the access to guns, I, I, as an example, my, my mom, um, she works with inner city kids and she didn't believe how easy it was to get a gun. Um, and she asked one of her students, hey, if I needed to get a gun, like, what would I do? And the kids said, just honestly, tell me when you need it by and what you're looking for and I'll get it to you tomorrow. And so it's like, it's one of those things. It's like, I don't think, I don't think people that don't live in the US understand how easy it is um, both legally and illegally to, to find a firearm. And I'll let Jay speak on this. I can't imagine it can be, you know, easy knowing at any call you have to show up and literally anybody could just have something in their pocket, like in, in their waistband. It, it's, it's one of those things that I don't think a lot of people, um, really can understand unless, unless you're in it. So I'll let Jay speak on that more though. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely, you you touched on something, um, Harrison, uh, in regards to it's easy to get, well, not in New York, but in other states, you get a firearm legally or illegally. Um, for example, there was a young, young kid. He went from... New York all the way to, let's say, Alabama, Louisiana, just go, just to have it, just because he was in a gang. Um, so no matter what, it's easily cap they're easily capable of getting a firearm in different states. Um, some people, you know, if they wanted to get a gun, they could just follow somebody who they know probably has a gun at home while they're sleeping, take it and have it, deface it. And then you go, you got a deface gun on the street. It's very easy. And, you know, even if they put more gun restriction, you could get a gun off the dark web. There's so many outlets in order to get an illegal firearm that even with more gun control, if a criminal wants to get something, he'll get it. And unfortunately, that's the that's that's the case. And um, you know, you see a lot of the, you see a lot of uh, weapons, and you know, a lot of um, you know these these incidents involving shootings in, in in communities because you know. It's not because they're legal. It's because they're illegal. They're defaced. They got off the web. They got it off, you know, somebody, their friend, their friend of a friend, and they just get it in here. So no matter what, even with more gun control, although in concept it can work, it will there will still be illegal guns on the street no matter what. Um, and that's just uh, that's just the sad fact. Um, and I, I really can't speak. I know the UK. You know, I, I you told me before, Thomas, that uh, you know they, the least they're unarmed and you have a specified unit which is wow incredible i i actually want to research more on that um i don't know if they have like types of defensive tactics or if they try like they use different metal i want to like do some more research as what their uh protocol is um i mean it's, it's a, it really is a completely it, different culture because we're, we're talking i mean they come to pride regularly in, in london right 
but uh, it, it, it is a, it is a massive difference in culture. I mean, it's it's not only a lack of firearms. I mean, there, there are tasers, so there are some kind of emergency weapons, but uh, they're rarely if ever used. Uh, and uh, as I say, the the, commu- the I think one of the key differences as well is that uh, it's one of the things you mentioned before. Police is very much seen here as something that comes out of the community by the community funded by the community to serve the community and it's the community that decides and and that hierarchy is is very present whereas and correct me if i'm wrong jay you might know more about this but i think you mentioned something before you said um you know if if we don't have good relations with the community then um then our job wouldn't be as effective. And I thought that's interesting. In my head, I would think the job wouldn't be effective at all. But maybe, maybe there's a kind of a, a supposition that you're making there that it's sort of no, the police and the community are actually two independent things. Is that right or, or wrong? They're two independent bodies, but having the community assist us with actual policing makes it so much easier because then we have human, intelli- human intelligence. Human intelligence. There you go. So human intelligence is very important when it comes to our policing because these are the people that tell us, hey, there's that there's this drug dealer at the corner that he's he's dealing from his house and every single day at 6 p.m. there's this car that drives up to his window. He doesn't leave his house, but they do a hand-to-hand. So you know what we do? We get that information, we sit there and we see the hand-to-hand. We're we're able to, you know get you know the legal documents the warrant to go into the house so on and so forth and get the drug dealer you know we you know you set up stuff like that hey there's these gang members in the schools schools especially because a lot of the stuff you know happens in schools uh that's where a lot of the you know the interaction between the youths uh occur um so like gang members um we have like a school resource officer or some type of you know school agent that they talk to the kids they communicate communicate with the kids and they're saying hey listen there's these gang members that they like harass me, you know, at, at the lunch table and they're telling me to join, to join, to join. And if they, I don't join, um, they're going to beat me up or they're going to hurt my, my sister, my brother. Um, so the aspect of the community helping us police is very important. Although the, they're two separate bodies, they, they're, they have to be in conjunction with each other. Although the police department is proactive in itself, it just makes the job so much easier if we have community involvement. The, my my thing there is, and I, I I personally I think that the police should be indicative of the community. Um, I think it would make everybody's lives easier uh, if you know because I, I hear issues where um, and I can't remember there are certain towns like I believe in Connecticut where um, something like only ten percent of the officers are are from that town or, or actually live in the area, and I think that that in itself makes the uh, department feel like I might strong terms but like an occupying force in, in the community if it makes you feel like mm-hmm. you're coming in here imposing your will on this and it, it's I think that's part of it. and that's once again that's not that's not an individual option that's that's talking about that tree that's talking about that whole system in place where you know as the community when I when I see an officer you know I don't know their name I don't I've never seen them at the grocery store or, or um, I've never seen them you know at literally practice with with my kids uh it doesn't make anything any easier so i think i think in the future and like one of those things we, we really need to help fix is making the department not a separate body from the community making it an integral part of the community making making you know each officer you know has neighbors that they can see every day that that are in the community i think that that in itself will just 
drastically, drastically improve relations with, with, with you, you can't really, well, you can hate your neighbor, but it's going to be, it's, it's a lot harder to, you know, hate somebody when you yeah, see, in, see real human stuff. In essence, um, uh, the community obviously wants to live in, in a safe environment and the, the police is there to ensure that they live in a safe environment and you cannot have one without the other. As, as, as Jay said, without the community, their job will be extremely difficult. Uh, and obviously without the police, you're gonna be played with a, with a, with a high rate of, of crime, uh, depending on the area where you live, right? Uh, so uh, it is extremely important to have a bond, a very strong bond with the community. Uh, and also you, you mentioned something very interesting. You know, it feels like an occupying force. And I think that also having members uh, of the community, of the police force being also members of the community. And that's that's actually uh, the case a lot of the times where I live. Um, uh, I live maybe a mile and a half or less, a, a mile away from the, from the PD. And uh, every single one of the members there has, uh, was born and raised in this town. And they, there is a strong sense of community here where I live. Uh, I, I never feel unsafe um, uh, here. Every time that I see the, the police officers just walking around, not even, you know, driving their cars, um, it's nice. And they do have these events, uh, the ride-alongs and all the other uh, uh, initiatives that Jay has mentioned. Uh, and it, it, there is a really good relationship here where I live, which I think it should probably be reflective of the United States. And I was very surprised. So during these uh, BLM marches uh, over, you know, police brutality. Uh, they actually took place here where I live. And then what happened was the police was, uh, they, they were escorting the protesters. They were alongside, you know, they were working side by side. Uh, protesters, demonstrators, however you want to call them, they were exercising the right, uh, uh, you know, the freedom of speech through protest. And the police was there to make sure that they were, they, they were able to do that in a safe manner. Um, and, and that it, it cannot get any, any, any uh, better than that to see that uh, both of them can coexist, you know, one of them uh, pushing for justice uh, over uh, a, a case of excessive force, and then also having um, the police there uh, be with them, being a member of the community, showing support for something like that, because it's just how it, it is the, the, the mindset here. And, and I really, really enjoy and um, interacting with the police officers here. And I think it's very, uh, it should work as, as a role model on how things uh, should be working. Uh, police and community being, uh, in, you know, talking to each other. But uh, okay, um, I think this is a, a good, uh, a good uh, ending point. So um, I want to thank every single one of you. Jay, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thomas, uh, thank you for, uh, for, uh, for being on the podcast. And obviously, Harrison, always a pleasure to be with you. Before we part ways, I want to ask each one of you if you could say one last thing about the topic in 10 seconds or less. So let's start with, uh, with Thomas. Well, I'm still a bit conflicted on what to think. On the one hand, Jay makes some excellent points that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the situation on the ground might be different. Harrison also brought some amazing points, um, uh, you know, regarding the, the culture of policing, the rotten tree. And then, of course, Efren, I loved the last comment you made uh, that coexistence is possible. So I hope that will be the future. I really sincerely hope that will be the future. And um, 
uh, and time will tell. Harrison. Um, I, I have to agree. I mean, coming from a certain background, there's, there's always that conflict and um, that family and law enforcement. So I think, I think there's a path ahead. I think we're, we're going to have to keep, you know, fighting to make that change and need everybody, everybody to step forward and, and, and help out. But I think we're, uh, we're starting to see some progress and I hope we can continue that. Jay. Um, just wanted to say that, you know, the police are there um, to help. We, we love the communities we work in and we love the people and we look forward to um, bridging that gap and providing um, the fluidity that the community expects from us and the professionalism that we want to exemplify every single day we get on shift, um, that we're not out to get anybody and that we are open changing so that community can have their needs of community support very well thank you and uh, my last comment would be um in an era where there is a lot of information coming from different sources it is always a great idea to learn from both sides of the coin there are two always two different stories and you shouldn't always uh, uh, make up your mind based on just one source. In this case, you know, we've been discussing about um, uh, police brutality, the excessive use of force through uh, different media, and they do have their own agenda, and it is one-sided, but I wanted to also uh, uh, listen to the side of, from the police officer, which is much needed, and unless you have access to a police officer, I don't think many people will actually even bother to ask him from their point of view, how is policing done? And I think it's extremely important for people to be educated. So that being said, this was episode nine of Chiefs of Station. I'm Efren Torres, your host. <laughs>